0: It's Monday, January 23rd, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. President Joseph R. Biden, who just stumbled across two classified documents in his underwear drawer. Oh wait, and another one that he was using as padding in the box of Christmas ornaments went on TV the other day to say... There's no there there. Thank you. And so the president, oh, wait, there is another one. It's been hanging on his fridge this whole time. He thought it was Hunter's high school essay on Beowulf. Anyway, the president set out this rationale for the issue of document security. There's no there there. Document security, which he says we all know that he takes very seriously. The terms, that exact term, was picked up by ABC's This Week, This Week, Let's Go There.
1: There's no there there.
0: No, by let's go there, I mean let's go to the tape of ABC's This Week, This Week.
1: No there there.
0: No, that, that there. That was the quoted denial, as relayed by host Martha Raddatz, heard here...
1: No, there, there, I mean. And there. Still, there is no there,
0: there. She sounds distraught there. I can only say there, there. In the clips we heard, there might have been the impression that she was agreeing with the president's sentiment. Not really. But theretofore, she did sound skeptical.
1: There is even
0: more there. Than first thought. And thereafter, other guests also regarded the charge of hypocrisy and treason and cast doubt on the charges therein. They will agree with what President Biden just said. There was no there there. Senator Chris Coons there and also... There's no there there. Also there. Like Chris Coons, the issue of there there was also entertained by Senator Heidi Heidkamp. There's no there, there. So CC and HH say no TT, meaning there, there. But reporters still have questions as they quote the president's argument saying there is no there, there. Mary Bruce there. And just as everyone agreed with the assertion that there was no there, there, more theirs were being revealed. There, one there was the garage in Wilmington, then there was the Biden Penn Library, and now there's the house. And that's the problem right there. They're fudging there and obscuring the fact that there seems to be at least some there, there. You know, there's no there there. It got famous as a quote from Gertrude Stein. And everyone thinks it's just making fun of Oakland, but that's not true. The context is she was writing about her home, Oakland, California, not as an insult, but as a lament. The population of Oakland when she lived there was 35,000, so a large town. And then 50 years later, upon her nostalgic return, she found her old house was gone and the neighborhood was unrecognizable. And at that point, Oakland had 300,000 residents. She said there's no there there, meaning the old Oakland didn't exist. Now Oakland has four forty thousand residents. So there are a lot more people and a lot more there's there just like the proliferating number of classified documents in Joe Biden's possession, but not under his control. Don't worry, we will be covering it because the gist goes there. On the show today, the tragedy of Monterey Park. We don't know why, but we do know who. I will examine that. But first, We're joined by a professor at the University of Chicago, Ruth Block Rubin. She is the author of Building the Block, Intra-Party Organization in the U.S. Congress. It offers a comprehensive theory to explain the logic and development of factions. And the reason we're talking about this now is that factions are what describe and explain this current Congress, which took 15 votes to elect a speaker. We're going to go deep down and examine... The motivations for what they call the Never Kevin Caucus. There might be some rationality therein. Yeah, even when it comes to Matt Gates, Ruth Block Rubin, up next. This episode is brought to you by the Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about the Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people. And you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career. Where it got to the desk of Barack Obama and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in it. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy with his 15 votes needed to secure that job, with his tenuous position of any member being able to call for a vote to vacate the chair. The analysis of this has gone somewhere along the lines of the Republican Party is nihilistic, they care for nothing, and with such a slim margin, this is what their tactics have wrought. That's not untrue, but let's take a step back, or maybe two. There is a greater political science context to put this all into. It's not as if factions have been unknown throughout the history of Congress and United States politics. In fact, this sort of thing, factions upending the workings, the smooth functioning of a Congress is quite common. And one of the best analysis of this can be found in a book by Ruth Block Rubin, political science professor at the University of Chicago, Building the Block, B-L-O-C, intra-party organization in the U.S. Congress. Professor, welcome to The Gist.
1: Uh, thanks so much for having me, Mike.
0: So when you saw this all playing out, and we, of course, knew that there was going, it was going to be a hard-fought effort, a slog for McCarthy to be elected, we had some inkling of how hard it would be. Did you say something along the lines of, okay, interesting in the moment, but to some extent, it was always ever thus?
1: Yeah, it sort of had the feeling of, oh, boy, here we go again. But on the other hand, it's it's uh, cool to see these dynamics play out over time. It gives you some perspective that the, the sky is not falling in the moment. You know, we've survived this. Yeah, it makes
0: you seem more stable, right? You don't say to yourself, oh, this is so unprecedented. How will the center hold?
1: Yes, yeah, so or clinically insane.
0: <laughs> right, right.
1: It keeps happening. So, so tell
0: me how this fits in with everything you've been studying.
1: Yeah, well so there's a couple of components of the recent speakership fight that are worth highlighting here. So the first is that as we saw, this wasn't a gang of dissidents who just decided to challenge a candidate for the speakership. This was an organized effort to deprive him of that moment. And I think emphasizing the need for organization is really critical here. So this is this is not a seat of the pants operation, but one that required like real collaboration and coordination. And we know that that's really difficult to do in Congress when you're challenging someone with that much power. And then it's also important to recognize that oftentimes we think of these um, speakership uh, roles as being uh, figureheads or that it's a sort of fait accompli or that it's, it's sort of um, that it, it's lacking in sort of real policy implications. And I think this fight reveals that there's a, it's not just about the guy who's going to hold the seat. But that there are thinking about what the party is going to be doing is all dependent on who the leader is going to be, that they get to make procedural choices and important policy decisions that are going to shape the future of the Republican Party. And that's something that's worth fighting over. Well, one
0: one piece of the analysis of this particular fight is that the objectors, the never Kevins, Uh, There were many of them to keep him from getting the vote, but the core unit were, and I think I use this term on my show nihilistic. Like we didn't exactly know or we told the people who are analyzing this said, I don't know that Matt Gates, Lauren Boebert, Gosar, Biggs, th- those few, a couple others really believe in anything except, and then maybe some insults were hurled, you know, their own ability to get attention on certain cable stations, but also the fact that they hated Kevin. Do you think that that part of the analysis was right? Or maybe you could put it in a different context to make us understand it differently.
1: Well, I think it's really hard in present day to understand what's motivating individual lawmakers. And I think political scientists are generally loath to assume that the only priority is sort of nihilistic self-aggrandizement. I think that's certainly possible, and we don't want to dismiss that as an option. Um, but I think there's often layers there. So, you know, one, one thing that I think made it hard to know what they wanted was in fact that they didn't talk about it all that much, right? It was just, here's what we want, um, procedural concessions, or we just don't want Kevin McCarthy. And I think the thing that we have to appreciate is that is a really effective bargaining position. If you don't tell people what you want, it's harder to co-opt individuals. If Gates went out there and said, here's what I really want. I care about XYZ policy. Well, then McCarthy's people have ammunition, to buy him off and to separate him from the pack. And so one of the organizational strategies we see among groups like this is to withhold information about what they want and keep leaders or rival factions guessing so that they have the bargaining edge.
0: So is there a historical precedent for that? I don't know, the Senate insurgency in 1909 or the decline of Southern influence in 57 to 64?
1: Yeah. I mean, we see this, um, there are are a variety of sort of moves that people have made. So um, in the 1910 episode where uh, House insurgents, Republicans again, uh, but this time progressive Republicans challenged the sitting leader. Uh, they actually came Joseph out Cannon, of
0: who the office yeah, building is named, Joe right? Cannon of yeah.
1: Illinois, a uh, great state of Illinois. Uh, they, what they did was essentially lay out uh, precisely what they wanted, but plus some, and they were ambiguous about what exactly they would settle for. And so by, by having a litany of concessions, they were demanding, but keeping it ambiguous, what their sort of core agreed upon bright lines were the idea was to be able to sort of get more than what you might be able to get if you were um, saying precisely how much pie you wanted in a sense. Um, But then there are other episodes where people don't, are, um, you know, more ambiguous. And this, we saw this in in part with blue dogs negotiating over the Affordable Care Act where they were sort of nebulous, about like, well, we're worried about some of these implications for say women's reproductive rights, but what exactly those bright lines were, only developed as they sort of got party leaders' buy-in, that they had to give them some concessions. And so I think ambiguity here is often a tool.
0: Ambiguity is a tool. That's interesting. At the time, maybe go back to 1910, or you pick a time period, were the amb- ambiguous demands portrayed as nihilistic and you know threatening to the good workings of our system?
1: Uh, not in 1910, but here it may help uh, who you are. Progressive Republicans were perhaps better branders as believers in government, as serving a purpose. And so a lot of their pitch was we need these reforms. We need to, again, decentralize control away from a, a sort of autocratic speaker because we need to do a better job meeting the needs of the people. And so they had a, I think, a, a more appealing pitch in the procedural concessions that they were demanding.
0: Well, this time around, some members of the Never Kevins, who turned out to be Never Kevins, did emphasize uh, they wanted to do whatever they could do to get budgetary constraints that they perceived, and I think there is something to this perception, won't happen without some drastic measures.
1: No, I think that's right, and I think it points to the reason why we don't want to assume that all of the protest against Kevin McCarthy's speakership bid was entirely because maybe Kevin McCarthy is a dislikable guy or, you know, Lauren Brobert or Matt Gates just want to get on Fox, right? Like there's probably more to it. And some of those budgetary issues would probably be top of the list.
0: But explain this to me, take Gates, take Boebert, let's take Gates. He was right in the middle of it. You said that uh, strategic ambiguity might be important because otherwise you could buy him off. As an individual actor, and Gates has shown himself to be willing to be that, wouldn't he want to be bought off? If you're bought off, you get paid, you get what you want.
1: Well, I think that points to exactly why organization is so important. So one of the things that we know is that there are these incentives for individual members to, uh, in a kind of prisoner's dilemma, sell out their colleagues, get that sweet deal. And collect the coin and move on and, you know, even be the hero. And so I think one that of the happened reasons- a little bit
0: with the ACA, which you mentioned, mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah. And so I think one of the things is, right, like what you need is some kind of organizational apparatus that's going to make it really hard to do that. And so by uh, building uh, either formally or informally, right, like these agreements about how you're going to negotiate, who you're going to tell, who you're going to talk to, who's going to speak for you, all of those things matter quite a lot. And we see that sort of written into the bylaws of some of these more organized groups like the house freedom caucus where there are you know codes of confidentiality you don't let just anyone in uh, because once they're in right that's that's a risk and so then there's also calculations of like How big should the group be? How many people do you want in? Like every time you let someone in, that's an opportunity to be bought off.
0: Right. We don't even know, the public doesn't even know exactly who's in the Freedom Caucus. I mean, most caucuses, you know, whatever is the Infrastructure Caucus or the Italian American Caucus, there's a list of them. The Freedom Caucus is opaque.
1: I agree. And I think it's one of the reasons why there's, you know, a a competing view of the Freedom Caucus among people who observe uh, these groups, which is to say this is all about branding. Right. And that, you know, by saying I'm a House Freedom Caucus member, it's just about campaigning and that it's meaningful to voters or donors. And I think the very fact that the Freedom Caucus's membership is ambiguous suggests that there's something more, because if it was just about branding, everyone would be happy with that label pit. But some people, you know, there's some use in hiding the ball here. And I think that points to the policy dynamic at play.
0: What? about this time around, given that you have the long view of history, what did seem unique or different from how factions within parties normally express themselves?
1: Well, I think there's two things that are worth flagging. So the first is just the, um, the narrowness of the House majority is fairly unusual across time. So it, it's funny if you go back and read accounts of, quote, narrow margins that speakers like Tip O'Neill had to navigate you're talking a narrow margin of like 50 people. That's yeah, not yeah. narrow. Today, it's, you know, a couple of guys. Uh, and so that, I think, just is hard to appreciate, just how closely divided the country is and how that's been reflected in the sort of the security of and size of uh House and Senate majorities. I think the other aspect that's worth flagging is the fact that the people who were at play, the critical protest votes were not coming from our typical gadflies. And the gadflies that we typically see are moderates uh, who could conceivably work with the minority party uh, and forge a cross-party coalition and go around the majority leadership to roll the majority party. And that's not what we had. What we had were Extremists protesting. So the last time um, that a speaker was challenged in this way were by either civil rights advocates in the 1950s and 1960s who demanded that the Democratic caucus implement a variety of reforms to decentralize power or you go all the way back to the 1910s with Speaker Cannon, where you had progressive Republicans who were willing to work with populist Democrats to change the way the House operated and the kinds of policies that were being passed. Only in recent decades have we seen extremists within the party seem to do things that on the one hand would might be productive for the other party and, and, and on the other hand are clearly in pursuit of an agenda that the minority finds antithetical, and many in the majority party find antithetical?
0: Political scientists will say we're more polarized than we ever have been before. It makes looking back to the normal ways that uh, government or our legislature has organized itself a little different. Factor into that are ideological sorting. So for the vast majority of U.S. history, Republican and Democrat didn't so closely align with liberal and conservative how true is that in complicating the study of history, that we're, it's a whole new ballgame now?
1: It's an interesting question. I mean, I think there are reasons to be uh, skeptical that the past can tell us about the present for that reason. Um, but there are congressional eras where polarization, uh, or I would say more cleanly sorted parties, uh were more evident where uh, if you look at differences between the two parties when it comes to, say, congressional voting, you get periods like the Gilded Age where there were significant differences. And so there you know, there are analogies to the past. I think the, the challenge is that when we often think about Congress, we're thinking about a period of time which is more unusual than I think we thought it was some decades ago. And so that's the period basically between the 1940s and 1970s, what political scientists and historians often think of as like the textbook Congress, this period of time where committee chairmen were uh, expert and long-serving party leaders were uh, legislative muckety-mucks who drank together in the House's Board of Education and you know, had those sort of norms of civility. And it was a, it was a men's club in, in, in both truth and in practice. And I think when we look to that as our comparison point for how to think about the current Congress, it does seem like our current era is so different. Uh, we don't have that anymore. Uh, we don't have legislative dorms where lawmakers are holed up in Washington, D.C. hotels, brushing their teeth together as you know Lyndon Johnson uh, famously experienced. That's not the life they live. But I think there are other eras in time which are maybe better comparisons and that uh, it's important to be aware of those when one's thinking about how to, how our current politics plays out.
0: So what about also disrupting the uh, flow of history or complicating, looking back at history, the idea that, you know, you've looked back at there's the sway of the parties and then there are factions or dissidents within the parties, but uh, a truism was that, you know, parties are powerful. These days, and I find this argument compelling, parties are so much less powerful than they ever have been. The ability for even a newly elected member to Use social media or other media to become a star, to especially raise, fundraise without the approval of parties, um, makes these free agents more powerful than they ever have been. Does that disrupt the analysis and usefulness of history?
1: Well, it's interesting because on the one hand, I think one of the features of American politics in comparison to other countries is the fact that our party systems have always sort of favored candidates over party organizations. And so in some ways, this is just more of the same. I think the irony is that you're right. uh, Decisions like Citizens United have made it easier for individual candidates to accumulate their own sources of wealth. And they're not as dependent on the party coffers to run. And that makes it harder for party leaders to You know, police their ideological borders and just get people to behave. Um, But at the same time, you have those same members who have far more freedom to do what they want complaining with increasingly raised voices about the centralized power of leadership in Congress. And so in the one hand, you have individual members who have far more autonomy to do what they want. And they're increasingly unhappy with what they perceive to be ever more power placed in the hands of leaders. And I think the fact that you see those things happening is not uh, it's not unexpected because when you have uh, members who are increasingly um, not tied to the party from a financial perspective, and there's a lot more pressure to do a bunch of different things once everyone gets to Congress, you actually need somebody to make de- decisions, to set the agenda, to schedule legislative votes, to do all the procedural work that's, you know, like housekeeping. And so as a result, members have delegated a lot of authority to leaders to do that work, and then they complain about it.
0: Uh, the motion to vacate the chair, which can be brought by one member of the House Republican caucus, this got a lot of attention as a concession. How important do you think it is?
1: I get ready to see that used or threatened all the time. I think uh, you know we saw a little bit of that under Boehner, and I think that there's absolutely no reason to think it will not be dragged out all the time. I think an interesting question is whether progressives, who've, progressive Democrats who've threatened uh, that this could be a tool they'd be willing to use, whether they'll do it. But I think conservatives you bet
0: do you think that if they threaten to use it and then have two or three votes that fail, it will become a less effective tool?
1: I, I suppose if the end goal is to get rid of McCarthy, sure. If the goal is to delay, which you know if we th- think about the, the how costly delays are in the Senate with threats of filibuster, you don't even have to filibuster today. You can just promise to do it and you know Senate Majority Leader will move on. So if that's the kind of thing we're talking about, that may continue to exact the kind of leverage that individual members want when it comes to getting policy concessions.
0: So another effect of the negotiations and McCarthy being weak is we're going to have many, many partisan investigations. Uh, What's your insight as to what history tells us or what you're Gut or knowledge tells us about will those investigations have a broad rippling effect, or does it just depend on if they find anything substantive?
1: Well, historically, it's worth noting that, you know, under periods of divided government like we have now, oversight of the executive always increases. And so, in that way, it's just more of the same. I think the question is whether the kinds of oversight, what people are looking for, is different. And I don't know whether. Uh, investigating Hunter Biden is is significantly different than policing, whether agencies are, or, are ordering too many muffins for their weekly meetings. It seems like, you know, when we think about muffin gate and past episodes of kind of frivolous oversight, it's hard to know whether today it's worse. I do think right. That one, one thing that can redound to the people's benefit is that if there are episodes like what happened with Southwest meltdown, there's an incentive for the house GOP to Probe that, and whether um, that produces some useful information for the American people remains to be seen. But you know there are enough political problems that might might rise to the level of interest among some who care about oversight in general, as opposed to grandstanding, which again is a problem that we might worry about.
0: Ruth Block Rubin is a political science professor at the University of Chicago. She is the author of Building the Block: Intraparty Organization in the U.S. Congress. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks so much, Mike. It was great to be here.
0: And now the spiel. A mass shooting in Monterey Park, California, claimed at least 11 lives. All right, passive voice there. A murderer killed 10 initially. Today, another victim in the star ballroom dance studio slayings died of their wounds. But why did the murderer murder? Given that the victims were Asian, given that the community was majority Asian, given that it is Lunar New Year, initially it was only logical to introduce the possibility that it was a hate crime. Do authorities have any theories about a motive for this attack?
1: You know what, they have a number of theories. They're not sure, it could be, and we've heard a lot of things on social media, and certainly the crowd around here possibly hate crime
0: because of the Asian population out here and it being a lunar new year. But we didn't know, so we waited. And if, I think you're like me, you waited and hoped that it wasn't. But why? Wouldn't lower the death toll, why did we hope? Riding in The New Yorker, Eric Luau, recounted his reaction in the moments between reporting of the crime and revelation of the suspect. Quote, On Sunday morning, as I waited for more details of the shooting to emerge, inevitably, strands of history began converging in my mind. I thought about a massacre that had taken place about 150 years earlier in Los Angeles, just a few miles west of the site of the Monterey Park shooting. Now, it's obvious why Lua worried that this could be a hate crime. He is writing a book about the history of Chinese exclusion in America. Half of his bylines reporting over the last three years have been about America's discrimination towards Asian-Americans. And this was, by the way, a hate crime. It's just that the particular contours of the hate were not of anti-Asian violence committed by a person of a different ethnicity, CNN reported. The alleged shooter
1: is Asian-American and believed to have acted alone. He was a regular patron of the Star Ballroom Dance Studio, even meeting his ex-wife there, according to three people who knew
0: him. I'm a little like Eric Luau. I bet you are too. In the liminal period between knowing what happened and knowing why, I hope the answer was something other than hate, something other than ethnic-fueled hate. So here I want to puzzle this out. I had this reaction, I think it was different from Luau's reaction, it may be different from yours. One reason that I was thinking what I was thinking is kind of simple. If it's a hate crime, then the crime wouldn't be just a failure of gun laws or of law enforcement or of the mental health system, which becomes a bit of a catch-all for things going wrong in a person's brain and no outsider stepping in. It becomes a failure of values. Now, guns are values too, but anti-ethnic animus bothers us as a special carve out. It's not an individual evil, but a societal one. So an anti-Asian or anti-black or anti-gay crime to some extent implicates us all. When a crime is fueled by rage, we put that rage on the perpetrator. We say he had demons, but with racism, we all have the demon, and we don't want the demon to be so pervasive. I personally don't feel it is. I don't think, and the statistics show, that most, I mean, the vast, 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 vast majority of murders have nothing to do with anti-ethnic animus. But if there were more and more mass ethnic killings, I'd be convinced otherwise. It would bother us. We'd have to do something massively different than what we've been doing so far. If the motive wasn't anti-Asian hate, but something like mental illness or feelings of worthlessness or powerlessness that induced rage, I think it's easier to chalk that up as something of a permanent human condition. Hate would create more hopelessness in all of us, more doubt in our ability to stop it and more fear for the next time. I also know that if it were a hate crime or were perceived to be a hate crime, it would get a lot more attention than if it weren't. The Pulse nightclub shooting got a lot of attention because of the death toll, yes, but also because it targeted the gay community even though the best evidence is that the killer didn't even realize Pulse was a gay club. The Atlanta murders of six Asian spa workers and two non-Asians is being prosecuted as a hate crime in one of the two counties in which it took place, though not in the other. If I'm gonna be honest, I wonder if my wanting the crime not to be motivated by anti-Asian hate was somewhat similar to when there's a report of an explosion and every Muslim American says, I hope it's not terrorism, and furthermore, I hope it wasn't a jihadi, because then every Muslim gets unfairly put under suspicion. Maybe I didn't want the shooter to be a white man, and it's almost always definitely a man, because I am a white man. Thought about this. I don't think it's true, because when there is a white racist shooter, like in a Buffalo supermarket or an El Paso Walmart, I never come close to feeling what you would call racially implicated. Now, I absolutely know there's a huge amount of writing on how a member of the protected majority will never feel racially implicated about anything. How we can always say, oh, that's not me. That's a gun owner. That's a right winger. That's a racist. And I get that. I just want to put that out there as to one of the possibilities is that the question of why or I retroactively was invested in an explanation other than racism. It is a possibility to account for. Mostly, I think there are two reasons. One, we have to acknowledge there is absolutely a rise in anti-Asian hate. It's hard to gauge how much and what counts as a crime motivated by anti-Asian hate and what motivated by just human-on-human aggression, where one of the humans happens to be Asian. But it's been thoroughly documented. I absolutely believe it. And a lot of this, maybe the majority, is because of the pandemic. And that would have happened no matter who had the largest microphone at the time. But given the fact that the man with the largest microphone was not protecting his Asian American constituents, that is a factor. Donald Trump was saying kung flu and China virus. And I have regarded those idiotic pronouncements as just that. Idiotic, unbecoming, wrong, but not deadly. So having heard Kung Flu and China virus from the White House podium or tweet deck, and while thinking that is so ignorant, that is so improper, it would be of extra discomfort to me if it was also lethal. It speaks to an especially dangerous world where these words can become those bodies. A world that actually is more dangerous than I think the world actually is. But I could be wrong. President trades and insults. The disease butterfly flaps its wings and one day 11 people are dead. I want that not to be true. I want Trump and his minions not to have said those words or believed those words, but I also want the consequence to be head shakes and disgust but not bodies and tens of thousands of hours of physical and psychological therapy. The other reason I didn't want it to be a hate crime was because if a man shot up a place because that's where his ex-wife hangs out or because that's where he used to be employed, it gets cognitively easier to process. Yeah, the killer's off his meds. What can you do? Yeah, the killer took a downturn in life. And this is how people horribly express that. Yeah, the killer's a desperate loser. The killer has access to guns. What can you do? What can you do? Actually, there's a lot you can do about guns, just that living in this country, we know there's no will to do so. But if... The explanation is the killer had hate in his heart. What can you do? There does seem to be a lot of things you can do. There seems to be an entire agenda we'd need to commit to. And it also seems like there are elements of this agenda very much in place now, and it's not working. So deranged gunman, possibly former instructor, kills 11, there is sadness, but it's in the domain of failed policies, or societal structures, or what goes on in people's brains. Hatred, that's in the realm of the heart, or what you might call the soul, the killer soul, and our soul. Luau's own essay concludes by considering the questions that raced through his mind before finding out that the shooter was Asian. Quote, I thought about the emotions that I'd just experienced. Had I been paranoid, too quick to believe that a racial motivation might be the cause, I returned to the history in front of me. So because the essay also recounted instances of anti-Asian insults directed at him or sentiments that he's overheard, what Luau is saying by a return to the history in front of me is that this particular crime is not a part of a story of anti-Asian acts, but anti-Asian acts are certainly a story of America. That's what he wanted to emphasize. It's not what I want to emphasize. What I'd want to say is something like, notwithstanding our history of ethnic hatred, it was a relief that this was not an example of that. It won't do anything for the victims and their families, but at least it doesn't add yet another seemingly unconquerable foe to the moloch that is guns and the naturally occurring processes that warp a brain. We have enough of those horrors to deal with. It doesn't change a fact or save a life, but it offers a tiny bit of solace that the crime in Monterey Park was but a replay of the usual horrors, not a layering on of new ones. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca, is COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's Advertise AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Booproo, pru dooproo. Thanks for listening.